When the groundbreaking The Bringing Them Home report into the Stolen Generations was released in 1997, Australia was shocked to learn that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children represented one in every five children living in out-of-home care. Today, over 20 years later, they are one in every three. The best strategy for changing this is the work of the Aboriginal Community Controlled Sector and its peak body, Snake, National Voice of Our Children. Catherine Little is the CEO. An Arunta Larritcher woman from Central Australia, Catherine came to Snake with a strong background in senior management positions with First Nations organisations. Catherine, it's great to have you back again. And since taking on the CEO role, you've been so active. I'm just wondering, now you've been in the role coming up to two years, what are some of your key achievements? Oh my goodness, key achievements. You know, I think... I actually am a person that still wakes up and pinches myself every morning that I get to work in such an incredible space. But when I think about the amount of work that has happened in the last two years and the commitment from the sector and the communities that we engage with, um, it's been remarkable. And those things have led to incredible pieces of work. So that's things like the development of um, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander early development strategy. Um, and I always get that name mixed up because there's so many strategies, but that's that's effectively a, a national plan that had to get sign-on from every single government department to acknowledge that caring for children and the responsibility for children is something that should be shared by all departments. And it set out a range of criteria and um, strategies in which governments could um, ensure that they are responding to the needs of children and families. And these things were, again, massive consultations across the country. We also managed to get through, you know, the sector strengthening workforce plan. And that one is really looking at what are the current needs for both early childhood, but also child protection in Australia. So that went as broad as what are the services required? um, What are the barriers to accessing early intervention supports? How do we change the way um, people are able to engage with services? How do we change the way people are trained? And how do we influence around the edges to ensure that systems change the way that they look and work with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. So again, that was a massive piece of work that required sign-off from um, all layers of government and, and all relevant departments. And then the other really big one, of course, was work that we did on Safe and Supported. So if you're not familiar with what Safe and Supported is, that's the national plan um, for protecting Australia's children. And it runs for 10 years. And um, each of those, and and over the course of that 10 years, there are two action plans. So using the national um, agreement, which of course is, is what the Coalition of Peaks had done in negotiating different ways to do to work with Aboriginal community controlled services using those priority reforms we were actually able to successfully lobby for a dedicated and targeted plan just for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and children. And that was really looking at the fact that um, with the trajectory for children in out-of-home care and, and that was in recognition that the numbers of children in out-of-home care who are Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander 
is a gross overrepresentation. And without targeted strategies and targeted actions that are for us, then that that trajectory was going to continue to get worse. Um, so they were um, massive, massive changes in the way that we're able to work with governments, but also to bring community voices and the voices of children into the way policy is developed. And the policy is important because if you don't work in policy, um, it's a, it's it's sometimes hard to understand. But policy is important because policy drives where programs go, which drives where the investment goes, which drives how you might understand how to effectively evaluate a program. And at the end of the day, um, we need those things to work and we need them to work differently. The federal government was handed down this past week. What were your reflections on it in relation to CASEA around uh, First Nations children? Uh, Look, I think we've seen um, a, a really awesome commitment to early education Um, and it's something that the sector has been really fighting for for a long time and you know that that again came through all those consultations every single room that I walk into with early educators tells us the same story and that is that our families uh, and most of them and most of those families who are experiencing vulnerability on a scale that other people could never comprehend aren't actually able to even access early education and care because it was a system that was set up to enable um, more double-income families to be able to go back to work. And that's a good thing. We support that. But what it didn't do was reinforce the importance of what Aboriginal people and Torres Strait Islander people understand as really good quality early education. And that is something that helps our families develop, helps our children develop, and is is delivered by incredibly skilled educators. Um, and right across the country, you know, uh, you know, it's it, the the emergence of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community controlled early education centres. They were all rooted in in grandmother's law and the recognition by our families and our communities that the way we develop our children, the way we communicate with our families and remove barriers for our families is very, very different. But the current funding models don't reflect that need and in actual fact um, hamper that ability. So we have have a lot of resistance um, from the community to say, listen, there is there is a significant problem with the funding model. Um, so we didn't see as much movement as we wanted to see relating to the overall structural of the first structure of the funding model for our early learning centres. But we did see um, what is really promising and that is a commitment to the to increasing the number of subsidised hours that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander families can access with a commitment underneath that to say, listen, we've got this on our radar, we're going to continue to work with it. I think the the funding into the health space, you know, how fantastic. Uh, we know that our families um, really do need to be able to access the supports related to health in a very different way. Um, So that is fantastic to see that remarkable investment. But I do look at it, of course, as someone who works in child protection and early education and care, which are vital, and think, geez, it would have liked to have seen a little bit more there. And certainly we're going to continue to work really hard to see more investment into the child protection sectors, the Aboriginal community-controlled child protection sector and the Aboriginal-controlled early learning sectors. It always strikes me when I listen to you 
uh, speak about the work that you're doing uh, at Snake, that it is a reminder of how important it is for community control to be leading these what to outsiders might seem seemingly intractable issues. There's a, a depth of understanding of how policies impact on First Nations families and a really deep understanding of what needs to be shifted in order to get different outcomes. From your perspective, being right there at the coalface with a seat of the ta- at the table, working with the um, the the peaks, the the coalition of peaks. What difference have you seen over the last couple of years in terms of how governments are engaging with our community-controlled sector? Oh, my goodness, it's been remarkable. It really has been remarkable. You know, there I, I would be lying if I didn't say I spent a lot of my time looking at a wall thinking I could go and bang my head against that, right? <laughs> There's some <laughs> honest truth in that. Um, and certainly as we've gone along, our, you know, our, our Aboriginal peak bodies, much like um, Aboriginal services, haven't had a lot of investment in them. So in order to be able to sprint to catch up to governments and to be able to be 100% prepped and have, be across everything before you walk into a room has been an extraordinary effort and, and something that I high-five the snake team on all the time and I'm sure the other peak bodies are, are doing the same thing but you know when doors open you've got to you've got to get through them because you don't know how long they're going to be open for or how, how fast they might close behind you so I look at it and I think of where we were even 18 months ago and the difference is extraordinary the ability to be able to pick up a phone and have a conversation, the ability to change the way you're having a conversation. Um, So uh, a a really good example of that would be, for example, the work that we've been doing with the federal government and the Department of Education relating to Connected Beginnings. And again, if you're not across this, so Connected Beginnings was the government's, the federal government's biggest commitment to improving the earlier educational outcomes for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children. And this is fundamentally vital that we get into this space. You know, the biggest change in life outcomes for anyone happen in those early learning years. So if we can get in there and make a difference at that point in time, things like child protection, um, they start to, the, the numbers relating to child children and out-of-home care, they start to go down. The numbers of people who are likely to come into contact with tertiary interventions of any type go down. The numbers of people able to, you know, live life the way they want to do it goes up. And that includes things like health outcomes and how your ability to access appropriate housing and all those types of things improve. Anyhow, so the federal government's announcement on that was, you know, a significant multi-million dollar investment into a program that already existed and a program that the Aboriginal community had been telling us wasn't working the way it potentially could work. doesn't mean that there weren't good people in there and good people working really hard. It meant that something was fundamentally wrong with it. And um, when we started having those conversations, again, using those incredible priority reforms, we were able to go into government and have some really difficult conversations and say, listen, we know that you think that this is a fantastic um, program, but we want to work with you on identifying what the potential problems are. And in doing that, we were, again, able to pull those levers and say, show us the data, show us how you're making decisions relating to this program. And that was a fundamental shift in the way governments were used to working with us. Um, And what it revealed was, say, for this particular program, there were 22 sites. At the time we were having those conversations, 20 of those sites 
that were getting that $120 million investment um, at that point in time were non-Indigenous. But without us being able to compel that data and have those conversations and say, okay, how did that happen? What do we need to look at? What was? What do we need to change in how you're assessing the maturity and experience of Aboriginal community-controlled organisations that we couldn't have had those conversations once upon a time? And now we can have them and we can have them in a way that is really transparent and sometimes really challenging, not only for us because it also meant as peak bodies we had to change the way we fundamentally worked. Um, and that was, you know, to stand there and get ready to smash every window on that train. We had to get really clever and work out how do we actually get in there and get our hands on the steering wheel. Um, and, and in some ways that's really hard to do because trains are already going fast and they're usually going in one direction and they're not that easy to manoeuvre. So um, while that's an analogy for it, it, it really is a really good descriptor of what it's been like trying to catch these things that are already in motion, but also change the way we work and the way governments work with us. I asked you at the beginning of our chat what some of your highlights have been in the role, but as we head towards 2023 and beyond, what are your priorities? Oh, look, our priority will be to always keep the uh, funding model high on the radar for our early learning centres because we know that our children thrive when they're being able when they're able to access quality education, early education. We also have really high on our radar um, the need for a fundamental transformation in the way child protection is looked at in Australia, and that means more investment in families before they even before we even have to have a conversation about child protection. It also means changing the way the child protection system works so that it values Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander understandings of kinship and what it means to be connected to your culture and your communities and your families. And if and, and when we're looking at things like the challenges of that, you know, we know that these those targets, the ones that directly relate to to snake under the closing the gap agreement, they are both drastically off track. This is not a good thing. And without a fundamental shift in the way we work um, with governments, those things will continue to look like that. So my aspirations for the next 12 months would be to see something fundamentally shift in service delivery and the recognition of the challenges that our families have. And that could be even as simple as governments getting really clear on how to measure things like the Aboriginal child placement principle so that we can have a really good understanding of why so many of our children are ending up in things like out-of-home care services when we know that when that data is drilled down into, many of those children should never have been in those rooms in the first place. And once they're in those rooms, it takes two years on average to get them out of there, even if they didn't deserve to be there in the first place. Oh, Catherine, you're such an inspiration. And I so admire all the work you do. Thank you so much for stopping by speaking out and thank you for being that voice. Awesome. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Catherine Little is the CEO of Snake, National Voice of Our Children.